Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38, and it says this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, Jesus, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his fathers with the holy angels. What a punchy passage to read. Um, And Jesus talks at the end there of, of judgment, of weighing something, of us being weighed, and a decision being made, I think. And actually... A lot of the time when we read uh, passages of judgment or we talk about judgment in church, we often talk about all the positive sides. But here Jesus just lays out starkly the other side. The context of this passage is Jesus talking to his disciples and he's had this incredible moment at Caesarea Philippi. And he says, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? What really strikes me about this is... Um, Jesus is around about my age. In Luke, it says he started his ministry at 30. Most people count that there are about three Passover festivals in the Gospel of John to say he was probably crucified when he was 33. That's a young age, isn't it? You're supposed to say it. You're not supposed to look at my grey hairs and go, no. It's a young age, right? And actually, his disciples were undoubtedly younger. Undoubtedly younger. In fact, there's a story, again, in the Gospel of Luke, where um, the miraculous catch of fish, you know, where Jesus is asked about paying the temple tax, and they go and catch a fish, and there's a coin in its mouth. And Jesus pays the temple tax for himself and for Peter. And we know that this tax was on people who were over the age of 20. So some people have said, actually, reading that, probably everyone other than Peter was under the age of 20. Maybe John was 13, 14, why he lived for such a, a long age in the history of the church. Actually, these are teenagers and young adults that Jesus is speaking to, and he's speaking into them. And actually, we often have the times that we live in described as the age of anxiety. But the time that they lived in was a time of inequality, was a time of corruption in the temple, in the tax system, in the military powers that were, that were over Israel at that time, was a time where there was zealous, uh, zealous terrorism, all throughout Judea and Palestine. It was an age of anxiety. It was an age of false prophets and false messiahs coming and saying, follow me, let's go to war, let's do this together. Let's fight in this way, let's do this way. It was an age of different religions and sects and cults and different gods being worshipped. And even within Israel itself, different people saying, no, no, this is how we live out being the people of God. We just focus on the temple. We just focus on all these laws and keeping these things. We just focus on this, on this, on this, on this. And I imagine... If you're a young adult growing up in Judea, you'd have a similar feeling to maybe what we have in London in 2019, where, I mean, what's the latest headlines? Gloriously, the latest headline is that Manchester United overcame PSG last night against all odds, which was fantastic. But um, maybe another notable headline is Boris Johnson having a haircut. 
Wow, and maybe that's truly the start of a leadership bid. But actually, we are just in the midst of chaos, right? Politically, socially, knife crime has been heavy in the news. Um, our relationship with other countries, what it means to be British, what it means to be European. And never mind the fact that actually, when we look around the world, every nation seems to be going through this. Whether it's South America, North America, Africa, Asia, actually across the world, people are facing these similar crises of identity and politics. I feel like it's probably felt really strongly by people of my generation who are called the snowflake generation. Have you heard that phrase once or twice, right? Snowflakes. But actually, there's a reason probably why people who would be disciples of Jesus today are snowflakes. When we think of a generation that has grown up with a totally broken family unit where divorce is normal, Uh, a generation that have grown up with the war on terror where every single public event is high-risk um, has, it's high risk and has a target on it, right, for terrorists, where actually social media has shaped not just how people make friends, but what friendship itself means, how meaningful relationships are, where there's been a financial crash that has totally changed industry. And I know all of us, actually, this isn't just something that applies to millennial snowflakes. This affects all of us. Probably all of us in this room have had things drastically changed within the last... I mean, really, within the last nine years, but longer than that. Within the last 25 years, there's been such big changes in society. So Jesus pulls these disciples together, these young teenage boys, in an age of terrorism and chaos, maybe a little bit like we face today. And he says, who do people say I am? And who do you say I am? And then we have this passage today where he calls the crowds in with the disciples. And what's the words of encouragement Jesus gives? Part of why I felt maybe this talk would be good for us today is actually I've just been reflecting on what Christianity is doing in response to this age that we're in. If I was to look around at what the major Christian denominations and churches are doing, in response to the chaos that we're facing at the moment. I think there's probably some pretty strong themes that come out. One would be that the church is busy fighting with itself over how it defines certain things, that there's probably more and more denominations and movements and independent churches than has ever been, and everyone has the right way and believes other Christians don't have the right way, that even within itself, you know, we see things like the Church of England has just had their synod full of bitter dispute. The United Methodists in America have just had big conference and it's been full of bitter dispute that's been played out in the media that actually there is a lot of division, not focusing on what Jesus is calling us to do. But then I look another hand and there's a real strong stream within the church that seems to be preaching peace and prosperity in an age of chaos. And there's a pastoral bit of that. That's a, that's a healthy response to people challenging, going, actually, God loves you. God is desperate for you. He wants to walk with you in this journey. That is beautiful. But there's also a sense where actually we're making discipleship really comfortable. And in our comfort that maybe we as Christians are trying to live in, that maybe as we as churches are speaking and preaching and modelling, we're not calling people into the sort of discipleship that Jesus calls his disciples into. Because Jesus takes these young boys 
in this really uncertain age. And he says, if you want to come after me, and all the goodness that that is, if you want to be with the king of love, with the prince of peace, with grace himself, with the word incarnate, with the holy God who calls us friends and sons and daughters, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The word uh, for deny, aparneo, um, it's actually the word that Peter uses to deny Jesus later on in the gospel. When people come and say, do you know him? Peter totally disowns and abandons. I, I don't know him. I've never been with him. I don't know what he's like. We have nothing to do with each other. And Jesus says, don't deny me. Disown yourself. Actually, all that you are, just lay it down and say, actually, I am shaped first and foremost by the fact that I follow Jesus. Not by my job, not by my family, as beautiful and amazing as as my family has grown to become. Actually, the thing that shapes me more than anything else is the fact that I follow Jesus. And then he says, take up your cross. Take up your cross. And the cross is significant. He doesn't just say, follow me and die. He says, take up your cross. And the cross is both a public means of death that is shameful, that is out on display, all to see. And actually, I think Christianity has maybe gone into its own bubble and we spend a lot of time in conferences and we have our own music and we have our own celebrities and we have our own social media. And actually, publicly, take up your cross. Give up yourself before the world. Let the world see that you have disowned yourself and have taken me above all else. And actually, it's a process. I've probably, you've probably heard me say this before, but one of my lecturers at Bible College said, you don't put someone on a cross to kill them. You put someone on a cross to leave them to die. And actually, this isn't, there's a truth that, you know, the moment we accept Jesus, that we are new creations, we are renewed, and it is a beautiful thing. But there's also a truth that it's a process, that it's a journey, that actually if we're sacrificing less to Jesus today than we did the day we became Christian, that doesn't look like cross-shaped discipleship. That each year being a Christian should cost us more and more as we take up that cross. And follow. I love this. Jesus says, if anyone, and it's literally in the Greek, if anyone would follow me, take up your cross and follow me. If you want to follow, then follow. And there's an explicit thing in this where Jesus is talking to his disciples and saying, if you want to follow me, This is the path I am going to the cross. And they don't literally follow him at this point. But actually, there's also a sense that for us as Christians, we've started to claim this theology of of promise and abundance. And we've not claimed the cross for ourselves. That actually we follow Jesus and yet our life doesn't look like one shaped by sacrifice. Shaped by abandoning yourself for others, for love. I've been really struck in my Bible reading. I've just been reading through the, through the law at the moment and reading about the Levites. And as, as the land is kind of portioned up and as we come into Joshua and Judges and they start to, to take the land and, and we see them settling and battling with the people there. And the Levites, their portion is the Lord's. And actually that's what we are through Jesus. Jesus, the great high priest, has now called us to be a nation of priests. 
in a beautiful, profound way. We've been entered into the Holy of Holies. We've been brought face to face with Jesus in a profound way. And actually, some of the theology that we have, that actually as churches we use when we want to give an offering talk, when we want to build our building, actually misses the fact that our portion is the Lord. Our portion is the Lord. Just like the Levites, their portion was God. So us, as priests under the great high priest Jesus, our portion is Jesus. And have we really claimed that? Or are we asking Jesus for everything else that his hands can give us, rather than him very self, his very self? He goes on to say, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That word, you probably see in pretty much every translation of the Bible, there's always a little letter after, for whoever would save his life. Because the word life there isn't zoe, the normal word for life. It's suche, which is the word which means soul. Or maybe it's the, the equivalent of the Hebrew nefesh. Now, we have this idea of body, soul, spirit as if they're separate things. But the soul is all that you are, biblically speaking. The soul is everything, is your will, is your emotions, is the physical you that God animated with his breath and your personality all in one. And Jesus says, if you want to lose all of that for my gospel, you'll keep it. All of it together. All of it. And I think actually, in some ways, soul, as we misunderstand it, would be an easier translation of that passage for some people. Because we'd say, well, my soul is God's, but my body and my family and my gifts and my career is mine. And I come and my soul gets fed at church and then I go and my body gets tired as I work and I feed myself. And actually, Jesus is calling us to give all of that, to lose all of that. For what does it profit a man to give the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You've heard me speak about this before. If you've been along to some of these Thursday services, I've been really challenged about the fact that we are a society that is in the pursuit of pleasure, where actually one of the most common searched-for phrases in this age is food porn. Of looking up just fantastic-looking food on Instagram, of, of eating at the late, latest place, of experiencing that, of, of travel porn. That actually we use that word porn to describe how decadently we want to experience and, and find pleasure in real temporal fleshly things that are actually, there's something good in that. There's something acknowledging the goodness of God's creation. But there's something of us pursuing physical pleasure, pursuing endorphins, when actually God would want to give us joy. God would want to give us meaning. And then we come to this really strong passage. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus doesn't mention the eternal reward. Actually, here what he does is he contrasts. Do you want to be the shame of the world or a shame when the Son brings you before his Father? It makes a stark choice there. A really stark choice. And the next verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, probably should be part of this. The Bible's divided a little bit weirdly in this point because Jesus then goes on to say, 
some of you will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God come in power. So how does Jesus respond to a time of chaos and change and upheaval? How does he respond to a, a snowflake world looking for substance, looking for meaning, looking for purpose? He doesn't respond by saying, be the best you that you can be. Or I think the phrase at the moment is, living my best life. Anyone in here, I know a few of us here have teenagers, have probably heard that phrase, I'm living my best life. Actually, Jesus says the way to a life of significance is through sacrifice, is through giving it all. That's not the most happy, clappy message, is it? But actually, to inherit our portion, to inherit Jesus, to take hold of that, man, that is real joy. That is real substance. We're just going to pray now before we sing a final song, and just ask God what that means for us. So why don't you stand with me? God, we give our all to you. Into your hands we place ourselves, God. I just ask now that by the inspiration and courage of your spirit at work in our hearts, you would reveal to us, we would know where it is you are calling us to follow you. Where it is we've created a comfortable cross. what it is you're calling us into right now. God, any part of us that we would give up, any part of us that we would nail to a tree and leave to die, God, reveal to us now and help us to make the decisions we need to step forward and follow you. And Jesus, this isn't just a message of sacrifice and suffering. This is a message of being with you, of desiring to be with you. So God, lead us into your presence, we pray. Amen.